I'm Stephen Henderson, and this is Created Equals Declarations. In the process of putting Created Equals episodes together, we speak with some really interesting experts and storytellers. Of course, we talk with them for much longer and about a much wider range of subjects than we can fit into the episodes themselves. So between new episodes of the podcast, we want to treat you to some important source material conversations with an expert from the most recent episode. We're calling it Declarations. This week, we hear from Lester Spence, professor of political science and Africana studies at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. His work in the last few years has focused on the neoliberal turn in American politics and how it plays out in African-American communities. His overarching point is that the conversation about policies that affect black people, for better or worse, has been shifted fundamentally away from the institutions and actions that fought against inequality in the last century. Here's our conversation. If you look at an uh, inequality curve, right, or you look at uh, inequality over time from 1929 to now, you have really high levels in 1929, really, really high levels now, and then a dip in the middle, you know, in the 50s Sort of 60s. an equaling out or, or leavening, yeah. I guess. Yeah, we suggest that, yeah. a leavening, right? But then it starts to increase around 1970 or so. That is, the uh, inequality levels in the United States start to increase. And we, I, this that uptick that we refer to as kind of the neoliberal turn. And what happens is that a number of policies get instituted that basically roll back the welfare state, um, that roll back something like welfare, that rolls back the ability of governments to collect taxes for progressive ends, and kind of replaces that with kind of of an entrepreneurial dynamic, which makes cities be more entrepreneurial, which tries to make individuals more entrepreneurial. Now, it's not just a descriptive that says, okay, I, I hustle or I have to hustle. It's like what happens is that we increasingly give resources to people who hustle and then take resources away from people who can't hustle. Yeah. And we, we see that play out not just in black politics, as you point out in the in the title, but overall in, in American politics. This has been yeah. the trend. This has been the, the sort of central conflict of American politics for several decades. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and you really see that. So we think about uh, on the on the right side of the political spectrum, you know, you a lot of Republicans laud Ronald Reagan. And it's Ronald Reagan who makes kind of who talks about this entrepreneurial spirit that America has to get back to. And he connects that entrepreneurial spirit to a set of policies that, again, reduce the ability of of governments to collect taxes that actually. uh, In fact, he actually says that government isn't the solution. Government is the problem. problem. Right. So when so that's an American thing. But then when that ethos gets injected kind of in black politics, then it actually increases the divide between the haves and have-nots in black communities. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Talk about what black politics looked like before this turn, and then we'll talk about what effect this turn has had on on black politics and on black communities. Yeah, so if you go back to the 60s, and what you had was, for the most part, of even though you had significant differences of significant differences between different black, black populations, black folk were basically on the liberal to left end of the political spectrum. Uh, they strongly believed that government should be used for progressive ends. They strongly believed in collecting and collecting taxes for the per- taxes for the purpose of something like welfare. Uh, they strongly believed in unions, um, not just in cities like Detroit, but but nationwide. Um, if you look at something like like black churches, right? Even though there is no one quote unquote black church, 
black churches were on the left end of the spectrum. They went to the extent they connected uh, the the New Testament to anything. They connected to, to a liberation kind of gospel. Right. Right. Uh, and then after that, you see all that stuff kind of wither away. So instead of the liberation, a, a type of liberation gospel, you have the prosperity gospel that changes the Bible to, uh, into a, a self-help manual. Um, <laughs> you know, we the, the black elected officials we have are articulating, you know, they're more likely to blame black people for the failure for their failures than actually articulate really progressive causes. Uh, and then black attitudes themselves have shifted gradually to the right. Right where it's become where they become more more conservative. In and so, ways. talk about talk about what that looks like. Uh, let's start here in the city of Detroit, the state of Michigan. What does this neoliberal turn sort of do to us? Yeah. So, uh, so in a, in a state like Michigan, uh, the first thing you have to do is talk about the larger structural dynamics that kind of create the context for this. Right. So, Michigan already has the most um, has the most lax regulations for charter schools. I think in the in the country. Um, and that's the product of state legislation. But with this last move to, quote unquote, bail out the Detroit public school system, they make, you know, they, they basically take charter schools and make them the norm or the standard within uh, Detroit spaces. Charter schools basically represent kind of the neo is one arm of the neoliberalization of public education. So and you can see that in a number of other areas, we have these structural things that happen kind of at state levels, at the national level, and then these things kind of trickle down to actors at the local level and they have to wrestle with them. Some of them kind of work with those constraints because they kind of have to, but then in other cases you actually have people, black people in Detroit, who ride or die for charters and believe that that and other forms of neoliberalization is the solution to Detroit's public school problems. Yeah. Right. Uh, the narrative we often hear about why this is uh, this is the way the country has gone is that the old way of doing things relied too much on government, mm -hmm. uh, took took away from the individual the ability to move up the ladder. Mm -hmm. uh, all of the things that that we sort of identify with the sort of American ethos, I guess that this mm -hmm. this idea of anybody being able to move from. Uh, the lowest station, the lowest economic station to the highest in a lifetime. Uh, why isn't this turn toward neoliberalism a sort of rededication to that ideal? In other words, that the government can't really move. Some people would say the government really can't move people forward. The government can't really yeah. uh, sustain a, a, a community with with taxes. You need, you need entrepreneurs. You need business. Yeah, well, I mean, you take... And this is why it's good to be, it's really, really good to be home. I mean, Baltimore is not home, but it's good. To, so Baltimore you, is so both of our homes. Yeah, yeah, you're right, right, <laughs> we yeah. We both lived there a long time. Yeah, yeah. But here, when you talk about things like the strength of the union, people really get it. So you go back 40, 50 years where you could, you know, my dad's a union guy. My brother's a union guy. Where my dad could basically get a job, um, get a job at a plant, make decent enough wages to basically provide for us to send two of his kids to, to, to the University of Michigan to provide for his grandkids, right? right. Have a nice, uh, nice crib, et cetera. And he's not alone in that, even among black folk. That creates the context in which people can be kind of innovative, right? Um, the unions are strong, were strong in part because of government, because of government legislation 
passed in the 30s, strengthened in the 40s and the 50s, but that, that allowed for people to organize. Yeah, and that allowed people to move forward in and, their and lives. That allowed people to move forward, right? The whole entrepreneurial trickle-down thing, empirically, we know that that doesn't work. The, I remember when uh, Reagan was actually making the argument. He was making the argument that if you released uh, entrepreneurial creativity and redu- by reducing taxes, we'd actually collect more revenue, right? Because people would be like, oh my God, right. I could do anything. They're right. not taking all this loot out my check. And then that will end up increasing the revenue. That never it's happened. never play it's never paid it's off. It's never panned off. Yeah. Never panned out. Yeah. Lester, I wanna I wanna pivot here a bit and connect the the, the themes in your book, knocking the hustle against the neoliberal turn in black politics to what we see happening in black communities this racial moment, uh, this sudden acknowledgement and witnessing of uh, of really brutal incidents in the black community that, that have gone on forever, but I think they, they take on a really different dynamic now that everybody can, you know, up on your phone, right, and take a look. How does this this neoliberal turn and the effect it's having on black politics, how does that connect to Things like Black Lives Matter, which is a subject you teach about uh, at Johns Hopkins University. How do all these things come together? So when you basically uh, take the welfare state and kill it, right, when you kind of uh, kill, uh, gradually kill or significantly reduce support for public housing, when you significantly reduce support, uh, you end basically welfare. You end welfare as we know it, right? What you end up with is, uh, and then you kind of kill public schools at the same time. You've got this large population that would have that under quote unquote under other circumstances would have been taken care of by the welfare state yeah. uh, would have gone into public schools and then gone uh, from public schools to be able to find a role in the economy. They now don't really have a place in the economy kind of as we as it exists now, right um, So what that requires is kind of a state response. So what you see uh, is a significant increase in policing, right? So in a case like Baltimore, uh, and this is the factor I use every time I talk about this stuff, police spending was at, uh, in 1990, the city of Baltimore spent $145 million on police. Um, last year, they asked for 400, I think, $475 million. Wow. Right. Uh, and this is in a budget of what, $1.5 billion, I think? Yeah, maybe uh, a little bit more. In, in Baltimore? 2.3, yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah. So, and by way of comparison, Parks and Recs, they spent $36 million in 1990 and $36 million now. Yeah, so less than 10%. Less than 10%, right. right. So it's like, so Parks and Recs flattens, police spending ramps up. There was a moment in time, I think when you were in Baltimore, where uh, Martin O'Malley was, was mayor. Yeah. He made more arrests, more single arrests yeah. than there were citizens in the city of Baltimore, right? Within a very short period of time, like several hundred thousand arrests. Yeah. And not only did that, but I mean, this was this was championed as and championed by, you know, as you point out, by yeah. lots of different people. Yes. Precisely because black people are themselves the victims of yeah. of the crimes. I mean, you get this weird dynamic where mm-hmm. uh, the, the the solution or the proposed solution to these problems ends up seeming like the the, the right way to go because things have gotten so bad because yeah. of those policies yeah. in the first place. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you basically hollow out all these communities because people are either connected to the they are either in the joint 
or they're somehow connected to the joint, and right. then that has all these problematic uh, uh, side effects. Yeah, yeah. So, so when you look when you look at a movement or like Black Lives Matter, when you teach about a movement like Black Lives Matter, what are you saying is the solution? I mean, this is one of the things that that I struggle with, and I think a lot of other people struggle with. How do you go back? How do you sort of turn around, yeah. given the political climate, given that we now have 40 or 50 years of this this kind of view of government as yeah. being in the way, being the problem, as being the norm, right? That's yeah. the baseline. Yeah. Yes. And anything yes. we talk about... Uh, in, in any other direction has to start there. Is there an opportunity with mainline democratic politics to really move the ball? Um, there is, but it's but it's kind of it's it's still kind of uh, that opportunity is kind of we have more opportunity now than we've had in a long time, but there's still some constraints. And one thing that it's important to note about the neoliberal turn, about some of the policies I've been talking about, it has basic, even though it was started by somebody like, promoted by somebody like Reagan on the right, um, it, it has bipartisan consensus, right? So, yeah. you know, it was Clinton that repealed welfare. It was Clinton, uh, Bill they, Clinton, they who say passed the crime policy. Welfare. Right, right, right. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was Clinton that, um, that, that signed the legislation um, uh, that ramped up federal approaches, punitive approaches to crime. Sure. Now, the thing is, is because of the the move from the left, kind of the Occupy left in the form of Bernie Sanders on one hand, and then is for the black radical left represented on Black Lives Matter on the other, there's some talk that uh, there have been a number of attempts by uh, people on the left to deeply engage in electoral politics. Yeah, yeah. And if that continues then maybe not this election, but the next election, maybe uh, maybe at the House of Representatives level, um, and definitely at the state and local level, I think we'll start to see. I mean, listen, you, you you sound optimistic about all this. I mean, you feel it feels like you think there's there's a possibility for an actual uh, sort of articulated uh, left leaning, further left leaning. Uh, wing of the Democratic Party to, to I guess, to, to emerge and start defining what they do. Yeah, uh, yes, and a left-leaning force within Black politics, which is basically, which is basically, um, which we really haven't had in a long time. I wow, I I don't think I ever would have articulated <laughs> myself as an I optimist. <laughs> but but yes, yeah, I'm listening to myself talk, right? As I'm, as I'm a trying to figure out if I'm making sense, but right. then b listening to like I do sound hopeful. <laughs> That's and I, right. Thanks so much to Lester Spence. He's a professor of political science and Africana studies at Johns Hopkins University. Next week, we'll be back with the newest episode of Created Equal. We'll explore the origins of the word carjacking and the media's role in determining narratives for marginalized communities. I'm Stephen Henderson. Thanks for listening. WDET's work with the Detroit Journalism Cooperative is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the Knight Foundation, and the Ford Foundation's Renaissance Journalism Project.